Hey everyone, before we get to today's episode, I want to give a quick shout out to our inaugural podcast sponsor, Paperly. Paperly is a school management platform that helps schools fill the gaps in your traditional CIS or LMS. I've personally known the founder of Paperly for the last few years and we're thrilled to have them support the show. We'll talk a bit more about them later, but check out them on their website at paperly.io. That's P-A-P-E-R-L-Y.io. Now, let's get to today's show. Welcome to Ed Leaders, the podcast covering all the interesting ideas about leadership, strategy, culture, and the business of K-12 education. I'm your host, Luke Kelly, and joining me each week in the chair is my co-host and colleague, Matthew Irving. Today's guest is Liam King. Associate Partner at Fisher Leadership Executive Search. Liam comes to recruitment with a wealth of leadership experience across Australia and Asia, having held multiple deputy and principal roles across the region. So without further ado, let's get to it. Liam, welcome to the show. Thanks, Luke and Matt, and really pleased to be speaking to you and appreciate the opportunity to be part of your podcast. Thank you. Well, this has been a little while coming, hasn't it, Liam? We have been trying to make this happen for uh, a good uh, two or three months, I think, but we're here now. So if you've listened to the podcast, you'll know that we love to start with your story about your journey in education and a little bit how maybe you've moved more recently into recruitment. Great. A great question. And I guess, um, unlike a lot of people, my journey is a little bit unconventional. Uh, I certainly haven't followed the linear path that a lot of people... And I always go back to uh, that whole concept of, did education choose you or did you choose education? And and for me, it was very much education chose me. Uh, I was a little bit of a resilient student, I guess, in the sense that I wasn't that focused. And so I had to get through on other skills and uh, got to the end of my educational journey at school and decided to take a gap year. Um, And what happened was my employment fell over at that time. And so I had to then go off to university and I found myself in a computer science degree, which in hindsight may have been a great choice. But um, later on, I think in the podcast, we'll talk about what fit looks like and what fit means. I just really found like I didn't fit in that crowd at that particular time. And so then um, a couple of things happened and I got an opportunity to go to uh, Teachers College and uh, loved it from day one. I started out my journey in in Catholic education um, and I guess I showed leadership qualities early on and after seven years was a deputy principal in a primary school Uh, and I did that for three years uh, before then moving across to the independent system and so it was a really interesting journey because whilst I feel like education chose me. I think from that point on, it was a series of choices that I made that really shaped my leadership journey. So after 10 years in Catholic education, being through Catholic Teachers College, uh, Catholic primary and secondary school, I decided to take the big leap over to independent education and landed um, at St. Leonard's College in Brighton here in Melbourne, which was a great appointment. I started there as deputy head of junior school at the Brighton campus and then head of primary studies. It was a multi-campus school, so across uh, the Brighton campus and the Cornish campus. And after a couple of years, once again, got a great opportunity to move into my first senior leadership role, which was relatively early. I was about 32 at the stage, and that was the director of learning technologies across the whole school. And that really opened up secondary education to me. It really opened up that whole 
um, business side of the school, I guess, at a very early age, and so was able to get some really great insights into the commercial side of the school. After doing that for a few years, I then made another big decision and a big life decision and family decision to take off to Singapore with a three-year-old and a six-year-old. And we went to the Australian International School in Singapore where I was deputy principal um, for seven years. Although in the last two years of that, I was actually doing a dual role. And there's a whole story which we could do another hour on where I moved into principal of the Stanford American International School for a couple of years while still being the deputy principal of the Australian International School. So Stanford was a a startup at that time, a brand new school. So it was a challenging couple of years, but but managed to get through it. And then at that stage, uh, I guess we, our children had grown a bit and there's a concept called third culture children um, when you're in the international circuit. And that's really about children who, I guess, have a passport from their country of origin, but have never really lived in that um, country. And so sometimes they don't have that connection piece with, with their country, with their culture and their family, extended family. And so in the worst case scenarios, that actually can lead to um, problems with relationships later in life. So we made the decision to move back at that stage for our two children. And I was fortunate that I landed at Kingswood College, um, a really innovative school in Melbourne Southeast as deputy principal and spent a wonderful eight years there. And then, you know, opportunity knocks again. And I guess I had this uh, itch that I hadn't fulfilled and decided to go overseas again and was principal of the Australian International School Malaysia. And eight weeks into that tenure is when COVID hit. So it was an interesting journey. Um, And so then... Coming back from that, um, I was really trying to decide what my next move would be. One of the things that I found, and you know, I've actually been fortunate to work with most of the major recruitment companies as a candidate um, throughout my journey. And so one of the things that I found both times coming back from an international posting was that whilst you had great skill set, um, often the the boards and the leadership teams really liked you. Sometimes they were a little bit conservative in terms of their choices and they perhaps preferred someone who was in the existing system. So I pretty much had resigned myself to the fact that I was going to come back and have six months long service leave because I'd never had long service leave having moved around a bit. Thought I'm going to have this wonderful break (laughs) and then came back and ended up uh, meeting up with Liz Jones and having a couple of conversations about some of my thoughts about recruitment because the candidate experience, but I'd also been heavily involved in recruitment throughout my whole career. When we were in Singapore, we would recruit up to 50 staff a year. So I really enjoyed that aspect of it and had some thoughts and ideas on how um, we could expand into Asia Pacific and a little bit more broadly across Australia. And long story short, uh, we thought those ideas might have some opportunities. So in February, so I did have a break. I had a six-week break and then started at Fisher Leadership halfway through February. Um, so it's been a great choice and uh, I've really enjoyed it. I guess the thing for me is, and I hope your listeners will relate to this, my leadership journey was a little bit like, as a teacher, I found myself working in the school, which I really loved. And I think in your career, you get to a point where you're in that sort of middle senior management position where all of a sudden it shifts 
and you're no longer necessarily working in the school, you're working on the school. And that's quite a significant mental shift that a lot of leaders need to make. And I guess this next shift for me is uh, the opportunity really to make a difference and have an impact on the system by appointing great leaders into great schools and really making sure that those communities can thrive going forward. Now, lots to unpack there. I, I, wanted, I do want to just dive back into one thing that you said, because it always, my, eye, my eyes light up and my ears prick around. Uh, you mentioned there, obviously you had a two-year window with the Stanford in- International School, and, and you mentioned it was a startup. And I'm always interested in uh, people who are starting new schools uh, from scratch. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, how, how that came to be, how you did, how you managed two roles, you know, how it was growing a, a new school from scratch, uh, you know, working, you know, with those partners in terms of, you know, building something in an international country, um, you know, wondering whether you could explore any, any, any and all of those questions. Sure. So the way it came about was the Australian International School was originally owned by a group of businessmen out of Sydney. So they set it up and, and ran it in about... 2008, they were taken over by, or they sold out to a large educational company called Cognita. And so Cognita are based in the UK, uh, backed by private equity. And so they were on really much an expansion sort of pathway. One of the things and one of the markets they identified was that there was a real opportunity in Singapore for an alternative American school. So there's the Singapore American School that has been there for over a hundred years. And it's very traditional and, and, you know, without being disrespectful, it's a little bit like Little America in Singapore. Um, It's very much a traditional sort of approach. Um, Those who know the international baccalaureate system would know that that's a little bit more of a progressive system. And so they decided, through a bit of market research, that an American school with an IB focus um, would go well. And so... Peter and who Peter Bond, who was the principal at AIS, was doing quite a bit of assistance with Cognita at the time in terms of looking at schools with them that they might be looking to purchase and buy. And at the same time, they were working on this concept of a new school. And so we worked with them quite closely throughout the whole development phase, designed the foundation campus with them. Peter and I went up to London and hired the foundation staff for them. But at some point, they needed to appoint a principal. And because it was an American school, they were fairly committed to the fact that they wanted somebody with an American accent. So I was never going to be the option for the principal, but certainly helped them right up until the point that they appointed their principal. Unfortunately, it didn't go so well with the foundation principal. And uh, eight weeks into his tenure, uh, they decided to part company and so I was pretty much parachuted in overnight. I'll never forget being talked to on the Tuesday afternoon and the Wednesday morning I started as principal. (laughs) Um, So it was a bit of a baptism of fire and I walked into a situation where the school only had 76 students at the time uh, because it was a startup school. Half of those parents were considering pulling their children out because they believed they had been sold a vision about a school and that it wasn't being delivered on. And so I pretty much had between mid-November to Christmas to really try and turn this around. And um, look, I'm pleased to say that we were able to do that, put in a lot of long hours. And by January, when we came back from the Christmas break, our enrolment had grown to 110 
by the time I left after two years, we had were at capacity on the foundation campus, which was 600. They were about to move to the permanent campus um, and they had 800 enrolments for that school. Uh, it's now a school of over 3,000 students. So I'd like to think that a lot of the foundational work that we did in those initial stages really set them up for success. That's absolutely uh, wow. an extraordinary story. Um, you know, uh, that that's absolutely phenomenal. Um, yeah. I think both of us are quite blown away from that. Um, you know, just, just thinking through that journey, you know, and, and um, you know, obviously starting at eight weeks, but you'd had some sort of background. What would be, I guess, your, your two or three greatest learnings, particularly in that startup context and the things that you really needed to take care of um, to get that school going in the right direction? Yeah, so the first thing really was to understand what the issues were um, and really find out, try and get under what people had been told, what the promises were and, and, and what were the quick wins that we could have. And so there are a couple of really quick wins we could do and, and really prioritise them. And they seem really simple, but um, <laughs> it's quite funny. So one of the things they had been promised was swimming lessons. Okay. And the school was a temporary site, so they didn't have a swimming pool, but you can actually get a swimming pool in Singapore quite cheaply. So we tried to use the Australian swimming pool. That wasn't going to work scheduling-wise. So basically, over a four-week break, I had a swimming pool built, an above-ground swimming pool, for 10000 Singapore dollars, um, and we started sw swimming lessons when they came back. And, and it's funny how things like that are big issues, but they have simple solutions. Another thing was they had this beautiful green field but no one was allowed on it, um, which staggered me. And so, and it and didn't really, the campus itself was a little bit sterile. So I sourced a couple of American football goals, put them on the end of the field, allowed the kids to go on the field. And all of a sudden that transformed what students did at recess and lunchtime. And I guess the other thing, and, and probably the most important thing from an educational point of view was they didn't feel as though there was enough structure around the learning. So what we did was basically create a curriculum guide for every year level, once again, in that six week period. And so that when they came back, the parents were given a copy of the curriculum for the year, scopes and sequences, all those sorts of you know, nuts and bolts things that most schools have in place. But as a startup, it took a little bit of work to do. Of course, I didn't address in my first answer the fact that I was also deputy principal of the Australian International School at the time. Um, and so what that actually meant is that the campuses were adjacent to one another. And so, you know, I was based at the Stanford site, but then would just get called across for significant meetings and for staffing and, you know, the things that they needed assistance with. I used to joke with Peter, who was the principal, you only call me over when you've got a crisis to deal with. <laughs> and surely I've got enough to deal with on my own site. <laughs> Absolutely. I think what's, <laughs> I can just imagine what that's like uh, when you're actually in a crisis uh, at Stanford and then they pulled to another crisis uh, <laughs> next door and you're going, I can only be in one place at one time. Yeah. Uh, I do want, I do want to go back to that notion um, of parent expectation um, and certainly, you know, Singapore and, and knowing, you know, parental expectation that despite um, espousing to be an innovative school, there was still that sense of actually we are expecting a level of, of foundation structure and, and, a, and a level of, um, I guess, traditional approach to curriculum, if you like. Yeah. Um, you needed to balance that up with actually some of the vision of, of really what, what you wanted to get after. Yeah. And, and 
parents are very intelligent people. You know, they are well read nowadays. There's a lot of information. And so whilst they've all had an experience of curriculum, they also do their research. And what they expect is certainly a progressive, innovative, future-focused curriculum, as long as you're getting the basics right. And, and so that real attention to detail and making sure that, you know, for one of analogy, the trains are running on time, you know, everything's in place that, you know, there's clear policies and procedures and all those sorts of things. I mean, they're all the, the staples that you have to have in a, a success, successful school. So that's a wonderful story, Liam, and it's something that, you know, I think we're all just trying to work out how you become a principal and a deputy at the same time and, and, and challenge that. We do want to move to, I guess, your current role. Um, and even though you didn't have your six months, you had your six weeks uh, <laughs> of break between the two. What's been the, the greatest, uh, I guess, surprise to you moving out of education? You'd worked with a lot of recruiters. You would have had a sense of what it was like, but surely there were some things that you just went, oh, I didn't know that's how it worked. Yeah, it's, it's been a fantastic transition and um, I've really loved and enjoyed it and, and Fisher Leadership have been wonderfully supportive of me, which has made the transition much easier. The way I sort of have sort of thought about it is schools are really dynamic in nature and every day is different and, and, and that is very much what I loved about being school and loved about being a principal because um, by nature I think I'm a bit of a problem solver and so I like those challenges. The other aspect of schools is, I don't know if you guys studied psychology when you were at university, but it's that whole Pavlov's dog. The bell rings and we know what to do. And, um, you know, we're very regimented and structured throughout our school day. I guess I was lucky in the sense that the three international schools I worked in were all for profit. Um, and so I had an understanding of that commercial side of things. But for me, having come out of my most recent appointment, moving to educational search was really a choice for me. And I guess because I had some opportunity to put some ideas forward, it was a little bit like a choose your own adventure. You know, this is what I'd like to do. These are some thoughts and ideas. And I just happened to find a company who were prepared to invest in me as an individual and my ideas, and in some ways fund those ideas and be patient with me to allow me. So it's almost like starting your own small business within a big business with all the resources and support. Um, the biggest challenge, I guess, is is that whole pressure of budgets. You know, it's feast or famine. You either have too much work on or, or too little work on, and you're always, I guess, searching for that next opportunity. But I guess it's like all those choices I've made throughout my career. I'm just enjoying the learning experience of it all and, and, and soaking it all up and, and each day learning from people around me. And I guess I'm wondering, um, you know, as you've found your feet, in that role that, you, you know, you talked about being a for-profit and, you know, like uh, when you were at a school and now, you know, being in a corporate role, you know, how do you go about kind of the KPIs that are associated with, you know, running a school in a for-profit uh, world and then going into this where there's obviously different KPIs and then kind of as you find your feet, how you come to understand about winning clients and, and is there any synergies between winning parents and winning clients. Look, absolutely. I mean, the whole winning client concept is really interesting to me because it sort of really suggests a hard edge to it. And, and it's for me, it's not like that at all. I guess what I have the benefit of is 33 years of being an educator and a principal 
and now recruiter allows me to really understand both sides of it quite well. So I probably come to it from a little bit of a different approach than perhaps some other executive recruiters. Um, and there's sort of no amount of research that can substitute for that because you've walked in the shoes, you know what it's like to be a candidate, you know what it's like to be a principal. I've worked with business managers and other senior leaders. So you're bringing that really strong industry experience. Um, and so for me, it, it does go back in some ways to that same concept that you were talking about with parents, but also with teachers and students. And it's all about relationship building and really connecting with people. And I think it's through those connection pieces and those relationships that that's where your opportunities come from. Because one thing that I will always try and be is be authentic with people and, and try and give them honest feedback about whether they've been successful or unsuccessful and, and why. Now, that's not always possible, and I'm sure you'll ask about that, um, but as much as you can, because for the candidates going through the process, it's as much a learning experience for them as well. It, it's not, not very often that candidates will be successful in their first attempt at something. Some do, and, and, and that's fantastic, but the large majority of people aren't. So if you imagine for an average principal's position, you know, when we get to long list, it, there's six to eight people who are all highly capable and could probably do the job, but only one of them can actually get the job. And so it's how you then work with the other seven and how you care for those candidates and give them the sort of stuff that is going to help them grow and develop for the next process they're in and, and really try and maintain and, and build that relationship with them. I'm just interested in the, um, you know, that sense of calling to, um, you know, continue to grow everybody during that process yeah. um, and that focus. And I think that really speaks to, I think, what schools do, particularly with internal candidates. I think we do that well in providing feedback, um, you know, and growing people for, for the next thing. But I guess from the inside looking out, you know, there's probably not that realisation that, you know, recruiters actually are in the business of growing people as well. Yeah. Um, and we perhaps haven't heard that before. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's really important and when people first hear that they have missed out on something, they have an emotional reaction. Uh, and we know that. We know philosophically and just sort of psychologically that in that moment, you're perhaps not in the best headspace to be able to hear the feedback and so sometimes what I try and do is is give them some reasons and then say I realize this is difficult to hear so if you'd like to have a further conversation in a week or two weeks when you're in the space then let's have that conversation and because it's it is all about helping them to be able to be successful down the track um, and so certainly some people will pick that up um, others won't uh, but those who do definitely do learn from it. And I think if I talk about Fisher Leadership just for a minute, I guess that's where one of our firms is a little bit different because we're not just a search firm. We have two other businesses. We have an interim business called Gig. Um, so we have the opportunity to put in short-term replacements and we've done that with a number of schools, for example, in business managers and director of community engagements where the school wants some time to reflect about 
what they are looking for in the next appointment or perhaps they want to do a little bit of a restructure. And so we're able to put people in short term. We've certainly done that with some business managers this year. And then the other part of our business is CLA Solutions. And so what that is, is an advisory service. And that is... um, and it basically has an ethical wall between our search business and our advisory business. And so they do a lot of things in terms of assessments, psychometric assessments, they do onboarding, but most importantly, they do coaching and mentoring. And so when we come across a really strong candidate, but they just haven't quite presented well, or there's something that we think that we can benefit them, they can benefit from, we can refer them to our advisory service. And then the first sort of interaction with them is free. So they have a chat and they talk about what they want to do, where the sorts of um, opportunities that we can provide to assist them. And then we've had some really great success with candidates who have had some coaching and some mentoring, and that has been the difference between them getting the position next time and not getting the position. You talked earlier, like you said, uh, I think, uh, you know, six to eight on a long list, and you kind of mentioned there that they could probably all do the job. I guess I'm really interested in often, you know, it might be a one percenter that might be the difference in four of those missing out versus the one that ended up getting it. And so I'm really interested in what you've seen over your journey so far as to that that difference. Like what is that one percenter for some people that you really makes them stand out for these particular roles? Yeah. And to be honest, often it's it's much closer than people think. Um when you get down to the final two or three candidates, often you are splitting hairs between the two candidates and you're looking for points of difference. In most candidates, the final candidates are all able to do the job. And and that's also really hard to hear as a candidate because you think, well, if I can do the job, why didn't I get the job? But if you, if, if you have time to sit back and reflect, it means that you're ticking all the right boxes and doing all the right things. Um, but it may be that it's the cycle of leadership at that particular school. Different schools need different leaders for different times in their journey. And what I mean by that is that um, if I think back to my time when I was at St. Leonard's, one of the principals there, the school really had tired resources in terms of buildings and those sorts of things. And so they really needed what I call a builder. They needed to, someone to come in and actually rebuild the school from a physical sense. Um, at other times, I've worked with leaders who are really strong pedagogical leaders, and that's because in some ways, the teaching and learning programs needed to be um, reshaped and, and reworked because the academic performance wasn't there. Sometimes you might need a strategic leader who's going to sort of set the direction or um, take the school in a different area. And sometimes they want someone who's really strong commercially because the school's going on really well, but they're looking for those other business opportunities to support the school. And so when it comes down to that 1%, sometimes it's at those margins and it's about the, the panel, I guess, identifying within a candidate where those strengths are that they need for that next step. And Liam, what I think is interesting uh, about that is that, you know, having recruited internally and externally before um, quite, quite extensively, and of course, that's your business as well, we often start out with an idea of what we want. And it's through that through the process, you go, oh, no, actually, that's not what we want. Oh, that's what we want. Um, and you kind of, there's, sometimes there's, there's some confusion. Um, and I imagine there are times where you're, you're recruiting and you're working with a the board, they know what they want, then they don't know what they want, and then they know what they want. 
how do you take them on that journey? How do you shape them to actually fully understand what they're looking for and who yeah. might be able to fulfill that role? So, so the way we describe it or I describe it is it's really a, a, a journey of discovery. Okay, so our responsibility as a search team is really to listen and respond to what they brief us on, but to also challenge them respectfully throughout the process. And you do that, you know, through open-ended questioning. And in some ways, if I try and use an analogy, you know, it's a little bit similar to the way you might deal with subject selection with students. Sometimes they come to you with a fixed mindset about, you know, what they think is going to be good for them. And through really well thought through questioning, you can open up their minds to different possibilities because perhaps you see a strength in them or an opportunity that they don't see in themselves and they haven't considered that. So I think in all processes, you really have that responsibility to be challenging in a respectful sort of way and then to provide a real diverse range of candidates. And one of the things that's really important is that we provide multi-dimensional diversity in terms of our candidates. And what I mean by that is diversity is often the thing, when we think about diversity, it's often the things that we can see. But multi-dimensional diversity is more the things that we can't see. All right? So how do people identify? What is their preferred way of working? Looking at the broader sort of senior leadership team, where are the gaps in the teams? and really trying to make sure that there is equity and, and that psychological safety in terms of inclusion, because you're appointing a leader, but you're appointing a leader not just by themselves. They're part of a senior leadership team. They're part of a broader community. They have to be able to work with the board. So all those factors sort of come into it. But at the same time, you really need to understand where the line is with the board and not overstep that line. So it's a bit of a delicate dance that you walk through, but by that really careful and considered questioning, and, and often it's open-ended and they um, sort of come to those conclusions themselves. And we haven't really talked about, which I'm sure we'll get to, how we get the understanding of climate and culture in the school. Um, but maybe if I, I go into that a little bit, and that might help sort of explain my answer to that question you've just asked, because we often get asked, you know, how do you understand the culture of the school? And in fact, at times, I think we're asking the wrong question, because culture is something that is deeply entrenched and it's slow moving and it's been there for a long time. I think what we should be asking is how do we understand the climate of a school? And the way we understand the climate is through these discovery days that we run. And what you're really observing is, is the interactions, the interactions from adult to adult, student to student, and student to adults. And it's almost like you're running an appreciative inquiry process because you're really trying to discover, you know, what's going well at the school, what's not going so well, and how they would like to do things differently moving forward. And that really gives you great insight because you also ask them to describe their ideal candidate and you'll get a variety of responses to that question and you're able to sort of stitch that all together but you're actually listening more than you speak so your whole time there you're looking at what's happening you're talking to a variety of stakeholders and we always try and structure it that we end up with the board so in some ways 
coming back to the question you originally asked, by the time we've finished our discovery day, which then develops into our search strategy, the last group we talk to, to the board. So we're already at that point reporting back to them and feeding back to them our insights and thoughts from what we've gathered from their community. And, you know, boards are great listeners. They're very smart people. They understand what they know. They also understand what they don't know. And, and we often find that they're very interested in what other people have to say and then that helps them decide what they're going to be looking for in the future leader. I'm interested in going back to the uh, the candidates for a second. Um, earlier on you mentioned uh, that a part of part of the advisory service that you offer is some psychometric testing um, and bits and pieces like that. I just want to kind of you know narrow in on that or zoom in on that and just kind of ask do you often do you do psychometric testing often as part of your process? And do you find uh, very often that, that you don't see an alignment between what the psychometric testing might tell you versus what you're seeing and, and what a client's actually saying? Yeah, so we do quite often psychometric testing as part of the final process. So between the, f the first client interview and the final interview, one of the great tools that we use is a, a test called the Hogan test. And so what that is designed to do is really to identify what they call derailers. And so everybody has derailers and, and derailers are perhaps the things that we're not as good at. There's lots of things we're really good at, but there are some things that we find challenging and we all have them, all right? The really successful leaders have developed ways and strategies and support mechanisms to help them in their areas of challenge or deficiencies, if you like. So one of the things through the psychometric testing and, you know, often when you are coming down to the margins between one candidate and the other, from that we can then develop a set of questions for the candidates in that second round about their derailers. And what we're really looking at that stage is some really strong self-awareness and, and I guess some humil humil humility <laughs> um, because it's not necessarily what they say, but it's how they say it. And it's how the candidates structure and answer their questions. And so at that stage, we're looking for, are they aware of what their limitations or areas of challenge are? And have they developed strategies and techniques to be able to overcome them? Not that we expect them to be perfect in those areas, because we know that they're their challenge areas. But it's, but it's how they are self-aware and, and what sort of those strategies and techniques have they developed. And, and you know, it's, that in itself can sometimes be a differentiator between two candidates on how they respond to those questions. The other thing that's really important is often how candidates answer questions in themselves. And so I always talk to candidates about how they structure their answers. And for me, there's always three parts to an answer. So when a panel asks you a question, they certainly initially want to hear your thoughts on that. They then want to hear, I guess, some an example of your experience of how you've responded to that. And then finally, they want you to relate that back to their school. Because what they're looking for you to do is develop a narrative and you're developing a narrative so that they can see you in the position that they're looking to recruit you for. And the more you can create that narrative and they can see you in that role, then the more likely you are to be successful. 
And Liam, is that last piece the thing that you see that the, that is the most often missed? Yeah, absolutely. Good at the first two parts, but actually it's the third part that they they don't quite nail, and that's actually one of those great discriminators. Definitely, and and it's you can do all your research, and you know nerves come into it, um, and in fact the other thing comes that comes into it quite often is people want the position too much. And so then they overdo it. And so it's getting that balance right as well of being over the top and over enthusiastic and talking too much and as against having a really concise, polished answer. And so once again, the advice I try and give to candidates is don't come into these situations thinking it's an interview in the sense that you're being under the spotlight come into it thinking it's more a dialogue between colleagues. It's a conversation. They want to learn about you, but equally you want to learn about them because you need to be making judgments as well as to whether these are the sorts of people that you want to work with. Because we know the most important relationship for a principal is with the uh, the chair of the board or the president or whatever the appropriate term is in that particular school. So if that dynamic is not right, then maybe it's not the right school for you, despite everything else that may, you know, you might tick all the boxes in all the other areas, but it comes down to those connections and relationships as well. And what's highlighted there, um, and you've said the word, you know, previously, is such a focus on Mm. self-awareness, such a focus on emotional intelligence, and that can actually be the one percenters. That's often the the fit piece, you know, and, and it's probably something we don't talk to our leaders enough about, and provide feedback because it's really hard. It's about disposition and it's about certain sort of behaviours or way of presenting yourself that is not necessarily tangible. Yeah, and look, having been through a number of processes myself and coming second in a lot of them as well, I know myself now when I reflect back, there are times where I just got over nervous because I wanted it too much and I probably spoke too much. And there's times when, you know, I wasn't as confident about the school. And so... There's a lot of time, energy and emotion that you invest in these processes. And so being discerning about the ones that you actually decide to go for is really important as well because you can get into that trap of of just going through the motions and you almost get interview fatigue. We see that for candidates who, who clearly want to take that next step but have been through a few processes and, and they're almost robotic now in terms of how they, that, they've lost that edge and that sharpness and a bit of their personality. You know, you really want to be your authentic self. I'm interested there. I, I want to go back to, you know, you talked about the Hogan test and how challenging, like finding your areas of challenge for yourself or, and also that EQ nature for someone to be really quite good in these types of roles and that being a differentiator. I'm just interested in your thoughts on taking that back to like a year 11 or year 12 student and kind of them coming out of year 11 and year 12 and how much work we've really done for them to understand that in the future, it's going to be very much those couple of things that you just pinpointed there that are going to be the differentiator for them, you know, being successful in, you know, careers and in jobs versus what we are still kind of marking, which is their subject and content knowledge. Yeah, look, I would probably even take it back a little bit further and say at nine or 10, 
is when we should be having these conversations before they're even going through that subject selection process. Uh, I worked with Elizabeth Lenders at uh, Kingswood College and one of the things that she would often say to students, which I loved, was when an adult walks into the room and says, I need to, or I need someone, before they even finish that question, you should put your hand up and be ready to volunteer because you learn as much about the experiences that you hate as the experiences that you love. And the more we can expose students in the middle years of education to a whole variety of experiences and help them really hone in and focus on, on what they enjoy and what they're at, they will make better choices in terms of subject selection. They will then make better choices beyond school in terms of what their future careers look like. And so I would love to see, I know a lot of schools do I guess what I call aptitude testing at year 10, um, which is a series of questionnaires which has some value, but I think limited value. I think some of these other sort of psychometric tools would be really useful. And why is it, do you think, that we're not doing more of that? Um, it's probably cost. I think, you know, these things aren't necessarily cheap. And I think it's probably a time factor as well. But I think the more, you know, as we know, with well-being and students and the challenges we have in those areas, I think the more we can do some work in this space where they we can develop their self-identity and their self-awareness, they're going to be better people. You know, forget about education, forget about everything else. I mean, our job is to prepare them for life beyond school. And so anything that we can do to enhance that. And I just think that at times that because I guess this sort of fits more into the wellbeing programs. There's no subject as such that prepares you for subject selection. Maybe there should be. Maybe it should be an elective at year nine. Um, but it would be interesting to see how we can create the time in the school timetable for those sorts of things to happen. I've seen some interesting approaches throughout my journey. One of the things that I would love to see, and I, I know we're going to get on to the future of education in 10 years, but you know, I can see a time in the future where it's more of a hybrid style education in terms of the range of things that students are offer, offered and they can choose some subjects a little bit like, we often see universe, what's happening in universities gradually coming down into schools. Um, and I think, you know, if you look at the Melbourne model where they have a, a broad offering in the different degrees that they do and then they have these breadth subjects you know it'd be interesting you know in those middle years where yes you have your core curriculum but then you have electives that pretty much go from seven to ten and that people can take those sorts of things and maybe that's the place to get some of this sort of stuff in and some of them would need to be compulsory and maybe it's a compulsory unit in there uh, but really looking at some vertical opportunities to create more choice for students. Great reflections, and let's uh, let's sort of pivot the conversation. One of the things we've been talking about uh, on the podcast this year is the role of the principal and the different identities, and particularly that notion of chief education officer versus the chief executive officer, and how the landscapes changed potentially. And some schools want one, um, you know, traditionally um, they they were the other. Um, what are your observations and insights uh, about those identities in 2022? Yeah, look, I, in 2022, I don't think you can have one without the other. I think the successful leaders um, in schools are both. So my personal view is that we need people who can do both. The principal is still 
the head learner, in my view, of the school and needs to have that really strong educational understanding, love for learning and be a lifelong learner themselves. But at the same time, schools are commercial entities nowadays, and so they need that commercial aspect of it as well. And so if you look at the great schools and the great school leaders, they're the ones who are able to demonstrate that they can do both of these things. And so I think probably the more interesting discussion and thing to look at is maybe we need to be looking at these successful school leaders and try and work out how do they manage both things and see what they have in common. And perhaps when we understand that the answer to that question, it will help then help us develop aspiring leadership programs, middle management leadership programs for aspiring staff to really build up those skill sets. Because you can have two candidates and you can have one, you know, if you think about the old concept of street street smart versus book smarts, You can have um, a candidate A that has had really great opportunities throughout their leadership journey and been exposed to the board, been given responsibility for project management, a whole range of things throughout their career. And so in some ways has a lot of experience in that commercial space. And then you can have another senior leader who has had a really clearly defined leadership role, but it's been in some ways a little bit limited in terms of what they've been exposed to but they have tried to broaden their experience by going and doing an MBA or something like that, but perhaps haven't, haven't, haven't had the practical opportunity to apply it. And so it's this concept of, you know, you're really looking, after, looking for the right mindset, the curiosity, and really trying to seek out those opportunities where you can develop those extra skill set. Um, And if I reflect on my own journey, you know, I was really lucky at a really early age to get that director of learning technologies opportunity because basically anything that had wires in the school was my responsibility. And so all of a sudden I was negotiating leases, I was managing budgets, I was trying to find cost savings. So exposed to the business side at a very early age, which really set me up for future opportunities. And even if I go way back earlier in my second year of teaching, and this was a different time and you might laugh about this, um, but it was back in the time when computers were just coming into schools and uh, we had a program called Apples for Dockets. So Coles supermarkets would, uh, you'd collect your dockets and you'd cash them in and you'd get some Apple IIe computers. And so we got a bank of IIe computers um, and I think I was... 22 at the time and I said I'll take one of them home and have a play over the weekend and worked out where the wires went in the plugs and got it working and then within a week I was the ICT coordinator for the school (laughs) so you know sometimes it's those simple silly opportunities that actually create a skill set that is valuable that then create the opportunity moving forward. I remember uh, collecting the dockets as a kid uh, so not just to kind of, you know, reflect on age here, but yeah. I remember, I remember that time. Um, I'm, I'm really curious because I think part of, um, the synergy in what you're talking about, um, too, is those opportunities of working in the school and working at, on the school, you know, when we were talking about the leadership journey and those, there's a real synergy there, um, in between those two, would that be a fair, um, summation? Yeah, absolutely. And 
often that transition comes when you're in the same school, which makes it even more difficult. So you might be a teacher in the school and you're then promoted to a senior or you might be a coordinator, you know, sort of, and then you, you know, promoted to a senior leadership. And so when that happens, you, you find your relationships change because all of a sudden you're having to make decisions and calls on people who were previously very close colleagues and things. And so how you navigate that space is really interesting, but as long as you are sort of open with people, you know, you have the conversations with people and they understand the reason behind the decision, it's quite easy to maintain those situations. They may not agree with the decisions, but if they understand the reasons, then often they'll respect the fact that the decision's been made. And so, yeah, so it's that sort of mental shift. And it, and it's often when I'm talking to young leaders, it's not something they have thought about they, and they haven't made that switch in their mind. And, and talking about young leaders there, I guess... Um... What excites you or maybe worries you about that next, you know, generation, the emerging leaders that you are, are starting to, to see come through schools? Yeah, well, un unlike a lot of people and, and given that I uh, was principal of a school when COVID hit and eight, years, eight weeks into my tenure in that school was when COVID hit. So you'd think that I might have a bit of a... a negative experience of, of what COVID was and on some levels I do but what excites me is what COVID has delivered um, you know you've had this situation where you have parents with an armchair view into the complexity of what teaching and learning is all about but also what running a school is all about and whilst there are some negatives that come along with that I think what it has uh, has you know, I think we're on this dawn of a new appreciation of the important role that teachers and school leaders play. And so, you know, you'll see there's a lot in the press at the moment about the number of teachers that are leaving. And there's actually some really great conversations about how we're going to attract quality talent. So what excites me is that there's a shifting landscape at the moment in terms of what education is going to look like moving forward. Um, and I think you know, for everything that was negative about COVID, the great thing that has happened is the embrace of technology. Couldn't agree more. And that's a great, um, you know, uh, segue into your view of, of the future in what schools might look like, you know, over the next 10 years and what we should be paying more attention to. Yeah, I, I think there's going to be some shifts in my view. Um, so one thing that I've also talked about for a while, um, it's a concept I call edgy edu track um, and so basically what this is is about differentiation and so I would hope in the next 10 years that from a personalized learning point of view that any teacher someone will develop this as a software solution I'm sure is that you basically will be able to jump into a, a system click on your particular classes and there'll be some sort of a color-coded system using traffic lights a dashboard where you can actually see where the strengths are, where the challenges are, where consolidation is required. You can drill into that with a whole lot of data that sits behind it from a personal point of view, from a class point of view and a year level point of view. So you can slice the data in different ways. And so I think the use of data is just going to become even more important, but it's got to be presented in a quick, easy, usable way for teachers. And so I think in the next 10 years, we'll definitely see something like that coming into play. Um, I think we'll also see, certainly in the senior years, and I would like to think a little bit in the middle years, a bit more hybrid learning. And so 
students may not be at school all all day every day there'll be you know these opportunities where they can be on site and learning remotely and I think we are seeing that obviously in the workforce at the moment and often if you want to see what the classrooms of tomorrow look like you go and visit corporations because sometimes they have an influence and I think the other thing and we're already seeing this um, happening is really a shift in pedagogical approaches so uh, you know we've gone through traditionally where you have the sage on the stage and then you've had this guide on the side with the facilitation sort of model I think we're very much moving now to very much an executive coaching model in terms of pedagogy and I think that will become more and more the norm in terms of how we move forward. I love those answers there. I want to take a quick minute to talk about our sponsor Paperly. Paperly has been designed specifically to fill the gaps left by your school's administration system. It has modules which include excursion management, sports management, co-curricular, peripatetic music, online store, digital forms with workflows, integrated calendars, and much, much more. Even better, it integrates seamlessly into Synergetic and other SIS platforms and can be added on a module-by-module basis. So you can try out different parts of the product one piece at a time. Dan Dawson, the founder of Paypley, has worked in schools for over a decade, so he actually understands how schools and school IT systems work and therefore how best to integrate the product into your school setup. Check out Paperly today, that's P-A-P-E-R-L-Y dot I-O, and have a chat to the team about a no-commitment trial in your school. And now back to today's show. Now, we love to end the show with a, with a segment we change the name of every week uh, with a bunch of rules <laughs> that no one ever listens to. So uh, this no week... No one follows it. This week, it's uh, six in 60 seconds. Um, oh, okay. So the, uh, the concept here is uh, just a quick, quick fire answer. But uh, if you want to break the rules, by all means, break the rules. <laughs> yeah, be like everyone else. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so uh, here we go. Apart from the principal, which executive role brings the most value to a school? Okay, so the obvious answer is that in all leadership teams, all roles bring value. Okay, so I'm breaking the rules straight away. Um, but I have a little bit of a bias, I must have say, uh, to the deputy principal, because I think the deputy principal is often the eyes and the ears of the school. Um, so the way I describe them, they're a little bit like a gully trap. Everything goes through the deputy principal, uh, and they're also the polyfiller. So wherever there's a gap, they fill that gap. And so for me, um, schools would struggle without really good deputy principals. Well, you were talking my language earlier with the NBA, and now you're talking Matt's language. Uh, there. <laughs> uh, I'm going to start calling him Gully. <laughs> Gully. Oh, great. Thank you. Who is, uh, what is one educational narrative that's been overrated or perhaps underrated in the last decade? Um, I would say blended learning. I think it's been underrated and I think the whole COVID experience has, has proven that to us, that those who really didn't embrace blended learning um, and technology in their teaching and learning programs were really struggled through the COVID period. So I know that schools have put a lot of time and resources into that and those that didn't get on board really suffered through the last couple of years. Absolutely. One educator you admire from afar. Now, this is a little bit old school and maybe a little bit remote, but there's a fellow by the name of Jamie McKenzie um, who writes an educational technology journey uh, journal called From Now On. And he's been doing that since 1991. And so I've been reading his stuff for years um, about 
integrating learning technologies. And he was the inspiration for my, one of my masters that I did. Um, and so I did a whole research project on integrating learning technologies into the middle years of schooling. Um, I don't think anyone's ever read it, but um, great learning and great insight in terms of how you work with teachers to shift them in their pedagogical approaches. All right, one leader you'd like to work with again if you had the chance. Now, this, this is where I am going to break the rules because <laughs> um, I no have one. been fortunate no to work... to the rules. You're all right. Yeah. Look, I've just been fortunate that I've worked with some amazing people throughout my educational journey and are always very grateful and thankful for the opportunities that they have given me. Um, but Jane Britton, who was head of the junior school at St. Leonard's College when I started there, she was just terrific and she was just so much fun. You know, we just had a great time together. We worked hard. Uh, we did some great stuff. So I'd love to, and I'm still in contact with Jane, so I really fond memories of her. Peter Bond, um, at who was principal of the Australian International School when I was there, once again, gave me that great opportunity to lead in my own right and gave me the space that I needed to do things and really supported me. Um, and so I'll always be grateful for that and would love to work with him. And once again, still in contact with him. And then Elizabeth Lenders at Kingswood College, who was principal, just a visionary leader in terms of curriculum and, and the future of education. And, and once again, we did some great work together because we had such a strong partnership I've just been really lucky that people have allowed me the space to do things in my own way and really respected and enjoyed those opportunities. So any of those three, and, and I could probably name another 10 others. All right. One book our audience should read. Yeah, I read last year a book called Belonging by Owen Eastwood. And anyone who wants to develop long-term high-performing teams um, should should look up that book and read it. It's just a, a terrific read. He's a fellow who's worked with uh, a number of sporting organisations, most notably uh, the All Blacks uh, from New Zealand. He's a Kiwi himself, but just a great book and, and great insight. I'll have to add that one to the list. And our last question, who would you like to hear us interview on the podcast? Once again, I, I could have broken the rules here and, and listed a whole swag of people, and I'm happy to forward you some names. But when I was reflecting last night, the name I came up with was Rick Tudor. So Rick Tudor was a principal in Melbourne, um, and he and his family have set up the Melbourne Indigenous Transitional School, uh, which is an amazing amazing service that they are providing to our Indigenous community. Um, his son, Ed, is the CEO of the company and, and his wife is also on the board. And so it's really a, a family endeavour and they are just so highly respected. And Rick, I can always remember Rick when I was an aspiring leader and he spoke at one of the Adhesa events. And there are three different principals who spoke at the time. And the first one um, spoke all about herself. The second one talked about all the different buildings that he had built. And then the third one was Rick. And Rick talked about the people and the students. Um, and he just really resonated with me at that time. Um, he's retired now, but he's had a great journey throughout education. And I imagine he would be great for your audience. Sounds like we definitely need to have Rick on the show. Now, I've got a closing question. It's a new one, Matt, that I'm going to start throwing in there. Uh, and it is something that Matt and I are uh, quite passionate about, actually, and we talk about quite often, and that's 
our to learn lists. Uh, so I'm really interested for you, Liam, what's on your to learn list uh, for 2022 and beyond? Yeah, so I think obviously in the formal sense, I'm learning on a daily basis in my new role. Um, and part of that will be embarking on an executive sales program to really sort of understand that side of the business much better. And I'm really excited about that because that will involve some coaching and mentoring for myself in terms of how I go about that. One of the great things about my current role is that I, you know, I almost feel fortunate in that I, it's almost my perfect job. I get to visit schools, I meet great people, and I get to help and shape those communities for the future. So my biggest learning is is about all the great schools that I'm going to be visiting this year. Um, and every time you visit a school, you see something, you learn something, you hear something. So so that's a great learning opportunity for me. Um, and from a personal point of view, um, my wife has just volunteered, signed up as a volunteer for the Melbourne Indigenous Transition School. And so I'm hoping that um, I might get involved in that in some way, shape or form as well. Sounds great. Now, that brings an end to our show for today. I hope you've enjoyed our uh, chat with Liam on leadership, recruitment, international schooling and uh, many more things. Uh, if people are interested in connecting with you, Liam, where can they do that? Yes, they, they can go to uh, Fisher Leadership and ring and they'll get put through to me or certainly a message and I'll get back to them or I'm happy for them to email me directly. directly. Uh, my email is lking at fisherleadership.com. Uh, we have a number of people who just want to ring up for a conversation because they're at the crossroads or they're considering their future. Um, I would do three or four of those calls a week and always very happy to connect and engage with people. And then, of course, there are those who are interested in positions. And uh, if you are interested in taking that next step in your leadership journey, please visit our website and please connect with us because we're always looking for good people and connecting with people on that level. Now, Matt, I know you've got something to say. Any closing comments from you? Well, I probably could say quite a bit about our conversation today. Um, I, I was initially worried about the Hogan test, um, <laughs> but um, Luke's very good at telling me what my derailers are. Um, so I kind of feel like I don't necessarily need to do it, but uh, I thought that would, that would be really challenging. Um, but I like that notion um, of journey of discovery and that it's it's listening, but it's also challenging. The board respects respectfully, and I think... Um, for me, that was a real sort of little gem. And I think the other one for me is remembering that it's not necessarily an interview, it's a conversation. And remember, it's about that connection that you're making. Um, so I think there's some really you know, great practical advice there for our listeners, particularly those that are looking to transition to the next step. And for me, I kind of, one of the things that you said really early on, Matt kind of brought us back to it, but kind of that notion of working on the school versus in the school. And I think that's quite an interesting notion of like that kind of mental model as you grow through your leadership roles, not just being in it, but working on it. And I think, you know, something more to think about there for me. So, um, so thank you for your time today, uh, Liam. Um, for our loyal audience out there, thanks again for tuning in. Um, no doubt you got some value from today's chat. Remember, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show and please don't forget to share the love and tell a few of your colleagues at your next PD, PLG, APC, whatever it happens to be, that you listen to this great podcast called Ed Leaders as part of your own professional development and remaining curious. You can also head over to edleaders.com.au and connect with Ed Leaders on LinkedIn and connect with Matt and myself there. Thanks again for listening and we'll catch you next week. Go well. Thanks everyone.